Usually, the week after Christmas before New Year is a little bit of a down week for some churches. So a lot of times it'll be the youth pastor preaching or um, a missionary update or something like that. But we um, want to take this Sunday to do something very important. We want to talk about the mission of the church. You know, every day when you wake up, you are faced with a decision. When you roll out of bed in the morning, you may not be conscious of this decision, but you are making a choice when your feet hit the floor. What direction is your life heading, and what are you going to try to accomplish? And it's not just individuals who face this choice. It's a reality for churches as well. The question at all times before us is this. What is our mission? Why are we here? What exactly is it that we are trying to accomplish? How we answer these significant questions will functionally determine what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. As followers of Jesus, our purpose and course of action is not something that we invent. The Christian life is not a creative essay. Our marching orders are drawn directly from the word of God. The scripture tells us who we are. We are made in God's image and created for his glory. And it also tells us whose we are. We are saved by God's grace through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we've been bought with a price. And therefore, we are to glorify God with our bodies. As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, He died for us not so that we would live for ourselves, but so that we would live for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. Our course of action has been charted for us by the all-wise, all-powerful Creator, the one who made us, the one who has redeemed us, who now commissions us to do His will. So we must look to the Word of God to discover the mission of the church. Although this mission is clearly taught in many places, we find it most famously and most succinctly in Matthew chapter 28. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, to the final chapter, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, we're told of the resurrection of Jesus and his appearance to uh, his disciples and to others as well. And in verse 16, Matthew writes, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, we pause as we open your word and we ask for your help, that you would help us to understand clearly what your will for your church is. And I pray that as you grant us understanding, you would also stir within our hearts a passion to do faithfully all that you call us to do. Lord, we confess we need your help, we need strength, we need grace, and we are confident that you will give it as you've promised. So we ask these things in faith, and Jesus, we ask it in your name, amen. In light of what the scripture teaches, 
we have formulated our mission statement for our church this way, that we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. That's a summary of what we find not only in Matthew 28, but we're convinced throughout Scripture it becomes a theme that this is our calling, this is our purpose. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. And if you've been around at this church for a while, you've heard us talk about this before. But I want to lay it before our body once again. You might say, why? Why do we take time to do this? Well, I am convinced that a lack of intentional focus, whether for a person or a family or a church or an organization, whatever it may be, a lack of intentional focus eventually becomes a lost focus. Mission drift is real. Distraction is real. We are forgetful people. At least I am. So our mission must be kept squarely before us at all times. And I think it's timely as well because we've had new people coming into our church family. And the mission of the church must be clearly understood and firmly embraced by everyone if we're going to faithfully carry it out. Otherwise, our focus and our zeal will become diluted. So what I want to do this morning, if I can speak very honestly is light this fire in some of you. Because, honestly, it's missing, perhaps, for some of you. Maybe you find yourself today on the sideline, not actively engaged in God's mission. You aren't seeking God's glory above all. In fact, you live for yourself. You aren't faithfully following Christ. And you aren't invested in helping others to follow Christ. I hope that changes today. And for those of you who are committed to this mission... I want to stoke the flame in your heart to stir up a passion for God's glory as you fully give yourself to pursuing his purposes for his people, for his church. I want to pour some biblical gas on the fire so that you burn hot and bright. So I want to ask the question, what does it mean to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus? This is a departure from what we usually do here at this church. You know, our our normal tradition is to teach through books of the Bible verse by verse. But I want to take a moment and evaluate our mission statement and try to show you the biblical basis for it and explain what we mean by glorifying God, by being and making disciples of Jesus. So let's look at the first component. Number one, glorifying God. What does that mean? To glorify God means that our mission has an upward aim. We'll return to Matthew in a moment, but I want to just zoom out for a second and examine the big picture that Scripture gives us. We exist to glorify God, and we start here. We have to start here because our mission, our purpose, flows directly out of God's purposes, and God does all things for His glory. We know biblically that he created the world to display his glory. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 4, the elders cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God creates the world for his glory. He saves sinners to display his glory. As Paul tells the Ephesians three times in Ephesians 1, he saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
He creates the world for his glory. He saves sinners for his glory. And he also judges his enemies to display his glory. In the book of Exodus, God tells Moses that he's going to judge the Egyptians. Why? God says this, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see, God is jealous for his glory. He tells Isaiah, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. According to Habakkuk, God's purpose in the world is that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's highest priority, get this, is the glory of God. He seeks his own glory in all things and does all things for the sake of his name and according to the pleasure of his will. And it is right that he do so. To do anything lesser would make God an idolater. So if God seeks to glorify God and all that he does, then it follows that shouldn't we do the same? Yes. Yes, all of our life is to be for the glory of God. No wonder Paul tells the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what does he say? Do all to the glory of God. So that is our purpose. We exist for the glory of God. But what exactly does it mean to glorify God? If you've grown up in church, if you've been around Christians very often, you hear them use this term, oh, oh, all to the glory of God. Praise be to God. Hey, God gets all the glory. What does that actually mean? Well, I think we can simplify it. There's a lot we could say, but to simplify it into two aspects. First, it means that in all things... God must be praised. That's what it means. When we say we exist for the glory of God, it means that in all things we desire that he would be praised. And everything that we do, everything that we are, is to bring praise to God. He is to get the credit. He is to be thanked. He is to be honored. And we do this not only by praising God ourselves, but also in calling the attention of all around us to see how great our God is. Psalm 67, 3 says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's the heart of someone who knows that their purpose is to bring glory to God. For God to be praised, he must be seen for who he is. He must be known as he really is. So our aim as a church is to magnify God. We want to make God known. He must increase and we must decrease as John the Baptist said. Our hearts ought to have the song of the psalmist on repeat when he writes, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Glorifying God means first and foremost that in all things he must be praised. So when we say that we exist for the glory of God, that's what we mean. That's the first aspect of glorifying God. But there's a second aspect. It means not only that God must be praised, but also in all things, God must be pleased. God must be pleased. Our aim in everything we, do, everything we do is to please our master. We seek to live and act in such a way that seeks his smile, that seeks his approval, that brings him pleasure. This is what Paul was communicating in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
This is how we worship him. We offer ourselves, our lives, as a pleasing aroma, a sacrifice to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We want God to be praised, meaning his glory is to be seen and known and celebrated, but we also want God to be pleased. This is the motivation for all of our efforts. This ought to mark every aspect of our ministry as a church. There must be a radical God-centeredness in the church of Jesus Christ. The death sentence of a church is when the glory of God is exchanged for something lesser. When we seek our own pleasure at the expense of God's, or when we seek the approval of the culture rather than the praise of God, we are opposing God's mission. In all we do, we ultimately want God to be glorified. And if we buy into this, it will control what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. So that's what we mean by saying we exist to glorify God. We want him to be praised and we want him to be pleased in us. So in what way has God called us to glorify him? This takes us to the second element of our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by, first of all, being disciples. Being disciples. What does that mean? Here's the second point this morning. Being disciples means that our mission has a forward direction. So glorifying God means we have an upward aim, but being disciples means our mission has a forward direction. Being disciples means that we are following Jesus. We are learning from him, seeking to become like him. The Christian life is fundamentally one of change. First, from death to life, as we are born again by the Spirit of God, through God's grace. And then it's a life of ongoing change as we progress from newness to maturity. This is spiritual growth. This is sanctification, becoming grounded and mature, increasingly holy and more like our Savior. So what this means is that for each and every one of us, there is a personal level of commitment that is bound up in this life of discipleship. To be a disciple means that you have to, first of all, repent Discipleship is a life of repentance. It's an initial turning from sin and self to submit to Christ, which then becomes a lifelong practice of repentance. Repentance is forsaking the love of the world, which John tells us is is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the false glory of our own pride, the pride of life. And instead, setting our hearts on God and his glory. Discipleship means we repent. We turn from self to Christ. But being a disciple also requires faith. To be a disciple means that you believe in God's promises. It means that you trust in Christ's work, in his righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. It means that you embrace everything Christ teaches us by his life and through his word. It's a life of repentance, but it's also a life of faith. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith glorifies God, and this faith is demonstrated by following, following Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
we glorify God by being disciples, meaning that we follow Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus Christ is the master that we are following. Jesus Christ is the teacher we are learning from. Jesus Christ is the perfect example we are emulating. You see, God's purpose is to conform us, to change us, to press us into the mold of his son, Jesus Christ. And this means that we have to leave behind our old life, our old identity, our old commitments, our old priorities, and we follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. This is not something you can inherit from your parents. You're not a disciple just because you grew up in a Christian home and you attend a gospel-preaching church. Discipleship is not something that can even be accomplished just by hanging around with Christians. And it's more than simply mental agreement to a specific set of truths. Discipleship is the death of self. If you are unwilling to personally follow Jesus, then you are simply not a disciple and you are not a Christian. Being a disciple starts with repentance and faith and continues with a lifetime of following Jesus and becoming like him. That's the personal, individual aspect to being a disciple of Jesus. But there's also a corporate aspect to what it means to be a disciple. So individually, personally, you have to repent of sin, believe in Christ, follow Jesus. That's what discipleship means. But corporately, when Jesus calls someone to himself, he calls them out of the world And he calls them into the church, just as those original 12 disciples found themselves joined together in a surprising mix. I mean, tax collectors and political revolutionaries, fishermen and religious zealots, these different kinds of people. So today, Christ joins together a surprising mix of people in the church, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, old and young, the highly educated and the barely graduated, all together in the church, people from various social and political backgrounds, people from different ethnicities and cultures. He brings us all together in the church. He adopts us into his family. We become the sheep in one flock. We are members of one body. We are collectively the bride of Christ. We are, as Peter says, a spiritual temple made of living stones that are built together To be a disciple of Jesus means that you embrace your part in this new community that Christ is building. There is no such thing as an isolated disciple. You do not please God, meaning you do not glorify him, if you refuse to live out your faith in the context of the local church. We follow Christ together. We serve Christ together. We grow into Christ-likeness together. The New Testament is saturated with all of these one another commands that you can't obey if you're not an actively involved participant in the local church. The book of Hebrews urges us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of this imperfect but growing group of saints, and you have responsibilities, responsibilities for your brothers and sisters, responsibilities to your brothers and sisters in Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus means you link arms together with your fellow travelers 
on the road. So there's both a personal aspect of being a disciple, repentance and faith and pursuing change into the image of Christ. But there's also this corporate aspect. You embrace your place in the new community of faith that Christ is building. So when we say we want to glorify God by being disciples, that's what we mean. We're committed to follow Christ personally, and we're committed to embrace our part in the community of faith, the disciples that God has called together in the church. But there is a key aspect of being a disciple, a part of following Jesus faithfully that is so indispensable that we've actually specified it separately. And that brings us to our third point. We exist to glorify God by being, and thirdly, making disciples of Jesus. What does it mean to make disciples of Jesus? Making disciples means that our mission has an outward concern, concern for others. Bound up in being a follower of Jesus is the responsibility to call others to follow Jesus and to help them do so. The mandate that we find in Matthew chapter 28, if you're still there, is to go and make disciples. Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Being disciples means that we are to make disciples. That's the main job description of a disciple. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, but you're not making disciples of Jesus, you're not invested or involved at any degree, then you're not a faithful disciple of Christ. This is a command. It's in black and white, or in red and white, if you have red letters on your, in your Bible. It's a command that is rooted in the authority of Christ. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore... I command you, go make disciples. This command, this mandate is empowered by the presence of Christ. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. So we know it's clear and we know it's possible because it comes from Christ himself. So what does it mean to make disciples? How do we do that? I think Matthew chapter 28 shows us that the mission of making disciples involves ministry both to the lost and ministry within the church. First of all, we seek to make disciples in the world. Notice what he says in verse 19. We are to go, go to those who are far off and make disciples. There's people right now who aren't following Jesus. They have not repented of sin. They have not trusted in Christ. We're to go to them. And it says that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name signifies that a sinner has been brought into relationship with the triune God. To take his name upon you is to submit to his lordship. It's to entrust yourself to his grace. It's to embrace your new identity as a new creation in Christ. Baptism is the first step of obedience by a newly minted disciple of Christ who has believed in the gospel. You see, our mandate is to make disciples, and the means by which this mandate will be accomplished is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the grave. Christ has all authority, and he has extended that authority to us, authorizing us to preach his gospel, to tell people the bad news that they are sinners who are in danger of the judgment of a holy God, but to tell them about his love and his grace that has provided a way to be redeemed, 
they will trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, verse 46, in the parallel passage to our text here in Matthew, Jesus says, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They are to go and preach the gospel. This is how you make disciples. We are witnesses who tell a story. We are witnesses who testify to the truth the truth of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses who report to the world what we ourselves have experienced. We've experienced the transforming power of the gospel. We've been made new. We've been made forgiven. We've been made clean. We've been given life and hope. And we share this with those who need to hear it. As those who have received and believed the gospel, we preach it to the world as the very power of God to salvation. In Romans 10, 13, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is good news. Good news. It's an offer and an invitation to all who will believe. But Paul then reasons with us, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the calling for all who believe in Jesus Christ to share this good news with the world and make disciples of all the nations, whether they are our neighbors or in Nepal and everywhere in between. We have an amazing model of faithfulness to this mission in the New Testament. We see it in the book of Acts and in the epistles that the early church did this. They preached the gospel. They made disciples. They multiplied. And now we are tasked to carry on that same mission by preaching the gospel to the lost. So to be and make disciples means we share the gospel with the world outside the church. But it means, secondly, that we are to also make disciples in the church So he says in verse 19, go and make disciples. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That refers to that moment of conversion and their initial obedience shortly thereafter. But that's not all. Notice the next step in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus tells us that these newly minted followers of Jesus must be taught And they must be taught everything that Christ has taught. The one who fulfilled the Old Testament law. The one who established the authority of his apostles to teach the church. Jesus' authority is over everything in this book, not just the red letters. And it's all to be taught to the followers of Jesus. Making disciples includes the building up and the strengthening and the equipping and the encouraging of the saints. To disciple a believer is simply to help them follow Jesus, to invest in their faith, equipping them for life in Christ, contributing to their growth in holiness and maturity. And we see this all throughout the New Testament as they did this. It's this this making of disciples through the teaching of the word is the work of pastors and elders, first of all. Paul says in Galatians 4.19, my little children... 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul labors like a woman in labor to see Christ fully formed in the hearts and lives of the believers in the church, to see them brought to maturity and completeness in their faith. This is what he labors for. In Colossians 1:28, he says, Him, Jesus Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's discipleship. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is what healthy church leaders labor for, is the spiritual maturity of the members of the church. The Apostle John writes in 3 John 1.4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he's not talking about his biological children there. He's talking about those whom he has invested his very life in, in the church. So making disciples is the work, first of all, of pastors and elders, and it includes the work of training up new leaders. Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what we do in training up new leaders, new pastors, new elders, new missionaries for the next generation who will carry on this mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples. But it's also the work of everyone in the church, those who are mature in their faith, are to help those who are not as far along. As Carrie already um, taught us earlier in Sunday school today, Titus chapter 2, verse 3 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You have a ministry in the church to help those who are not as far along as you are, to invest in them and teach them and train them in godliness. This is the work of parents, fathers, mothers. Disciple your children. Ephesians 6 says, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's discipleship. Discipling those who live in your home, those little kids who are growing up under your care. This is the work of the whole church. Hebrews 10, 24 tells us, let us consider, this collective let us, all of us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is something that every member does, investing in the spiritual growth of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you, are you involved and invested in this aspect of the church's mission? Are you? There's a question I often ask myself, a question that I think is good for all of us to reflect on, a goal that I have personally, is after having been in this church, and after having been in relationship with me, will this person be more like Christ and stronger in their faith because of it? One of my favorite movies, don't talk about movies very often here from the pulpit, but if you'll spare me this one time, one of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. And at the end of that movie, George Bailey sees what that town would have been like 
had he never been born. And he didn't realize the impact he'd had on various people. The fingerprints that were all over that city because of the sacrifices he had made. And I wonder sometimes, if we could see sometimes what the world would be like without us, who is it that would perhaps not be as strong in their faith? Or who is it that would maybe even not be a Christian? Had it not been for the way that God used us and used our life in their life? Who is it that your life is touching? Are you involved in this aspect of the ministry? Are you sharing the gospel with those who don't know Christ? Are you investing in the faith and the life of other believers in this church? This is our calling. The church's mission is really one of multiplication. We want to see the lost saved, and then we want to see the saved, equipped, and matured. That is what we mean by glorifying God, by being and making disciples of Jesus. We exist, this church exists for that purpose. That is our mission. There are many good things that the church can do. There are many important causes out there. There's many um, legitimate needs in the world. But there is one thing that the church must do. One thing that if we do not do it, we have utterly failed to obey Christ. Our call is to make disciples. That is what glorifies God. And that is what is central to being a disciple of Jesus. Do you understand the task that is before us? My job is to help you see it. I hope you can see it. But something I can't do for you, something that you have to personally choose to do, is to commit to and invest in and actively participate in this mission. Are you involved in this mission? And if not, let me ask you why. Why? What's keeping you from actively participating in the mission that God has given us? What is holding you back? What needs to change today? so that you can get off the sidelines and roll up your sleeves and join us in this work of the ministry. Back in the early 1900s, um, right before World War I began, there was a man named Ernest Shackleton. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that name before. Any of you familiar with him, with that story? A couple of you are. And legend has it that this man, Ernest Shackleton, this Arctic explorer, posted an ad in the London newspapers trying to recruit a crew for a dangerous expedition to the South Pole. And whether or not this ad was actually posted can't be confirmed, but it's awesome anyway, and I want to read it for you. Here's how blunt and compelling his ad was. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Legend has it that 5,000 men responded to this ad in the newspaper. Now, some people would, would hear that story and go, yeah, but that's back when the ships were made of wood and the men were made of steel. That was just a different era, and they don't make them like they used to. But I think this story says more about the purpose for which we were made than it does that particular moment in history. There is something deep inside of us that resonates with being part of something that's bigger than us. Being a part of something that matters, something that will last even when we are dead and gone, even if it's risky, something that is noble and necessary and rewarding. Brothers and sisters, the mission that God calls us to, this is the mission. That is what you were made to do. 
Yes, it will be costly. Yes, it will be hard. It's not easy. Yes, you may face adversity and opposition. Perhaps it will even mean that you suffer. Sacrifice is bound up within this mission. But there is great glory in the coming victory. And there is an eternal reward. And it will matter forever. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The question I pose to you today is, will you be a part of it? Will you be a part of that building, that investing, that laboring, that sacrificing, to see sinners saved and then conform to the image of Christ, to the glory of God in heaven? God, as we consider this morning the clear teaching of your word, that we exist for your glory and that we, that we are called to follow Christ and to make disciples. I pray that you would light a fire in our souls and that you would fuel us by your grace to be obedient to your command. You've made it clear what our lives are to be all about. But God, it is so easy for us to lose track and lose sight of this mission, to become entangled in lesser pursuits, to allow other worldly priorities to creep in and choke out our focus on what really matters for eternity. I pray, Lord, for those here today who may perhaps be on the sideline, those who believe in you, but they're not actively involved in serving you. They're not sharing the gospel with those who are lost, and they're not invested and involved in helping other believers to follow Christ and grow in their faith. I pray that today that would change that you would reveal to them whatever's in the way and that they would be brought afresh to repentance and that they would demonstrate their faith by obeying you and following you. Lord, perhaps for those in the room today who are not yet disciples of Jesus, they've not turned from sin and trusted in Christ, I pray that today they would recognize their need for salvation, that they would hear this compelling story about the God who literally wrote himself into the story, who entered his creation became one of us, died and rose again to save sinners. I pray, Lord, that they would abandon all of the lesser glories, the lesser meanings, the lesser purposes that abound in this world, and they would anchor their faith to Christ and embrace a new identity as a follower of Jesus and receive a new purpose, a new mission in life. And Lord, for those in the room today who do labor faithfully, I thank you for that. I praise you, God, for how you have used so many faithful brothers and sisters in this church over the years. God, I pray that you would strengthen weary hands, that you would renew our zeal, that you would stir up a passion that, that would enable us to persevere and endure and to be faithful day in and day out to the little things, the hard things the seemingly inglorious things that nobody sees, I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit and help us keep our eyes firmly fixed on the goal, on the prize. Lord, strengthen our faith to believe that it's worth it. All the sacrifices are worth it. The labors are worth it. That there is a crown of righteousness laid up to, for all who love his appearing and who persevere in their faith. Lord, we look forward to that. We long for it. And I pray, God, that you'd use this church we're not large, we're not impressive, but God, we do want to be faithful. We want to preach a crystal clear gospel. We want to follow you faithfully. We want to spill our lives and spend ourselves for your glory and the good of others so that your glory may be seen and known by more people. And so, Heavenly Father, that you would be pleased 
by our life of sacrifice. Lord, help our church to keep this ever before us, to be faithful. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be fruitful. Amen.